1: Hello and welcome to Government vs. the Robots, the fortnightly podcast that takes a look at how technology will affect politics in the future. This week's guest is Henry Timms. Henry's the co-author of a book called New Power, which he's written with Jeremy Hyman's. Henry's had a long career in philanthropy and community organising, and currently heads 92nd Street Y, a New York-based community and cultural centre on the Upper West Side. The ideas behind New Power first surfaced in the Harvard Business Review in 2014, and have since been discussed at Davos. The book sets out the difference between old power and new power and I'm really looking forward to hearing from Henry what this means for politics, government and technology companies in the future. Henry, thanks very much for being here. It's a pleasure. Can I ask you first off to introduce yourselves to everybody? Uh, My name is Henry Timms, and I'm the co-author of New Power, how power works in our hyper-connected world, and how to make it work for you. And um, I've had a look at your CV, so I know you've got an awe-inspiring CV for people who want to change the world for the better. Can you tell us a bit about some of the other things you've done? So I guess I've always worked in social
2: change in one way or another. So I started my career actually here in the UK working for... Two of the Prince of Wales's charities, arts and business, which helped encourage the business world to take the arts seriously, and then was involved in setting up the Arts and Kids Foundation, which helped kids get more of the arts. I then went to to New York um, and worked for the Louise Bourgeois Institute, and we built a big museum in London, and then created a big global summit summit around how kind of politics and culture fit together. And then I went to work at the 92nd Street Y, which is a for a British audience, if you imagine a little bit of the South Bank, a little bit of the Barbican, a little bit of the RSA, and a very good nursery school, and put it all together on the Upper East Side of New York. That's what the 92nd Street Y does. And so we think a lot about engaging civic participation both in the building and then around the world. So we've been involved in projects like Giving Tuesday, so after Black Friday and Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday was a kind of philanthropic response and, and that project is now uh, in a 100 countries.
1: Well, I uh, I've I've been a delegate at the Social Good Summit, so I've Great. been to nice second yeah. oh, good, um, and have worked with fundraisers who've been very keen to make the most of Giving Tuesday, so it's a familiar world in some respects. I just want to th- ask first if it's all right Henry. Usually I end this podcast asking guests, um, where they've seen people change, where people have changed the world for the better, what are the characteristics that they've displayed? How have they gone about making that change? And rather than asking that last, this week I wanted to ask it first because I've been reading your book and my eyes were drawn to the thanks part and I was thinking about how hard it is to sometimes to get a project to fruition.
2: I thought you meant how hard it is to write the thanks part, (laughs) but it is very, very hard because you essentially it's essentially an exercise in working out who you're going to forget and irritate. And there's no version of the thanks column. Either you write 64 pages of thank you, so everyone you've ever met is included, or you write three pages, and then you just know that all that happens is kind of the sly resentment of people who weren't thanked when they should have been. And I'm sure we've missed four or five people. And actually, I'll take this chance to apologise for those people who weren't thanked. I'm very sorry.
1: Well, someone you did thank, and I thought it was interesting, and it may be that you don't want to tell me, was your brother. And, And I wondered whether there was reflection there on how hard it is to get projects together and what you've learned from writing the book in terms of getting a project to the end
2: yeah I think I think that's right I think one of the one of the things any project this was this is our first book and it was a stretch and I hadn't written a book before and it was a lot of ideas I'd learned from people in the field and and there's a level of kind of a risk tied to that and especially with books which I I haven't done this before where you kind of you have these ideas and They're your ideas and then they're released into the field and then lots of people have ideas about your ideas and that can be terrifically positive and it can be very damning and so there's kind of interesting dynamic behind that but but from a personal perspective and this interview has turned very american very quickly um from a personal perspective it's been a journey right it's been an exercise in kind of um in taking on something new and seeing how far it could go and and the the list of people at the back is is just a small fraction of the people who who support and encourage and inspire to get behind a project like this and my my brother would be top of that list
1: and so when was the idea for the book born when did the penny drop so we jeremy hyman's my co-author and i uh, come from different backgrounds
2: so he's a lifelong activist and had co-founded things like a Vars and get up in in australia and uh, i have run essentially some old power institutions in one form or another but we both seen the word in very world in very similar ways which was trying to get beyond this kind of quite limited conversation about changing technology you know, did Twitter cause the Arab Spring? And, like, do I finally have to understand Snapchat? And get people to a conversation about power, about how kind of power was shifting in the world and what that meant. So we were both very engaged in that, and we wrote a piece for Harvard Business Review three years ago, three and a half years ago, which first laid out this frame of old power and new power and how they fit together and what they mean. And then we have such a good response to that piece. It was really interesting that what happened, we put that piece in the market, and then all these people from around the world were taking the frame and talking about how it mattered in their world. It was actually a very new power response to the article which was we saw health workers who turned the frames into things which would help them think about their work in more thoughtful ways we saw a spy agency there's a guy in the states who runs one of the biggest spy agencies now if you think about kind of the ultimate old power organization it's an intelligence agency right they literally have all of the information they hold it up they're behind closed walls but even they are thinking that they've got to engage with this world of the crowds and that's really what the the core piece of our work is to say that look there's this there's this emerging world of new power this ability to harness the energy of the connected crowd and no matter what you're doing in the world whether you're setting up a platform like facebook or trying to win an election or trying to run a spy agency you have to build this set of new power skills alongside your old power skills and when we saw in the market so many people getting their heads around the idea of what that meant this spy chief did a really interesting thing so obviously you live in an old power world if you're a spy chief right you have all this kind of closed up information but he built an intelligence laboratory outside of his main compound where they had no access to confidential material of any kind. So he took away all the things which t- typically had made a spy strong, which they had access to the satellites and nobody else had. And he said to these guys, you've now got to learn how to be a spy in the open. And what he meant was, in a world where all this information is decentralized and distributed so much more, there's a new set of skills for how you think about that world, which is such a different set of skills from... The, the previous era of, of spies when he told me the story when his career began you know his job was he would get these pictures these satellite photos and he would look for the you know the, the, the dubious areas he put circles around them and he then put it in a shoot the information would go in a shoot and he'd never see it again like this very closed up world what spies are now dealing with now is how they think about open innovation how they think about the crowd how they think about information sharing they're doing quite a lot of interesting work uh, actually especially around kind of open sourcing And intelligence and so that was just one example of what we saw around the world which was this kind of uh, enthusiasm for what new power might be able to do and and that was
1: the thesis of the book you give me a great chance henry to uh plug an episode of government vs robots called bites not bombs with the former gchq staffer who now runs an open source intelligence agency an ethical open source intelligence agency i want you've used the phrase old power and you've used the phrase new power and and maybe you could spend a couple of minutes explaining to us the difference between old power and new power
2: So think of the difference between uh, the two biggest video games of all time, both of which I think speak to a different kind of a mindset. The biggest video game of all time is Tetris. And so if you think about Tetris, we all remember Tetris. It was literally top-down, right? The rules were very clearly set by others. And our job was simply to make things fit into very neat lines, just replicate, 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 until eventually we collapsed through the exhaustion of the game, right? That's what old power is. It's it's Old power is it's very top-down. It's very command and control. You kind of download your ideas onto the world. It's very leader-driven. The world of old power operates like that, and it's one most of us know quite well. The world we don't know as well is the world of new power, And so the second biggest game of all time now, would you like to guess? Minecraft. There we go. All right, good. You've got to get your free copy of New Power coming to you. So Minecraft is the second biggest game of all time. And Minecraft is similar. It's a block-based game. It works in the same way. But its dynamics reflect the New Power world. And, And what I mean by that is if you don't know Minecraft, it's a completely open space. And it's built from the bottom up you you can build anything you want in minecraft and it's co-created by the people who play the game so there really aren't any rules you learn rules from other players you create things together so in minecraft you'll find churches that people have built together you'll find football stadiums that people have built together you'll find acts of terrorism that people have taken on together so it's not like a paradise but it does reflect the world where this kind of new power is rising up where people are coming together to create things in distributed ways that are made by many that channel the energy of the crowd so if you think about the old power world the old power world operated with power as a currency. I've got it and you haven't. The new power world thinks of power as a current. It's something which flows, which surges. You can never quite hoard it. But if you can channel it, you come out on top. So the, the, the argument we make is that this is not we need to get rid of old power and embrace new power fully. This is not you know, out with one and in with the other. What we say is you need to be able to blend these two sets of skills together. And the set of skills that most of us don't yet have is this set of, of new power skills. And are those skills, are they applicable to individuals or organizations? Both. I mean, I think that you think about just a simple idea, like how ideas spread in the world now. And we used to think in the old power world, You think about the soundbite, right? You think about the kind of the perfect moment that everyone would just parrot again and again and again and again. Or you'd think about the kind of perfect logo which everyone would draw. And and that worked for an era. That's how, you know, ideas stuck in our minds. It's not how ideas spread, so if you look at something like the Me Too movement, what's so interesting about the Me Too movement is it has some very kind of distinct characteristics about how it spread around the world. Of course, that movement began with an activist in the States called Tarana Burke. Uh, and after 10 years of, of her work, it went crazy. Uh, it went wildfire around the world, right? And three of the things that, that Me Too did, did so in such an inspiring way was, first, it was very actionable as an idea. It wasn't just asking people to kind of applaud. It was asking people to really step up and say, look, I have a testimony to share here. Second, it was very connected. It tied people together. Every woman who stepped forward made the whole movement stronger because she added her testimony with others. So there was a real kind of sideways spread to that idea. And a lot of ideas that work today aren't coming from the top down, but are actually spreading sideways. And then thirdly, it was extensible. So it could actually change into other things. So what was so interesting about Me Too is that it morphed when it entered different sectors, and it morphed when it entered different countries. So in France, Me Too uh, movement became Denounce Your Pig which is just so very French. But so you think about the kind of those three principles. It's actionable, it's connected, it's extensible. If you want your ideas to spread in a new power world, you can't design them like soundbites. You have to design them so they have the characteristics that they leave space for others to participate. And I think one of the biggest challenges for the old power world is we were so used to expecting so little of people right? Your job was really, you complied, you consumed, especially with government, right? You just, your job was there to actually do very little. You vote once in a while and you keep in line. We're now asking people to take on this range of participatory behaviours, and that can be a real challenge to people who
1: who really haven't expected very much from the public. And can you give me an example of a, of a new power organisation?
2: So I think there are a lot. There are some examples of organisations who have both new power models and new power values, and there are some that end up somewhere slightly different. So if you think about two axes... One is, what kind of model do you have? Do you have a new power model, which means you can you know, encourage mass participation and peer collaboration. So think about Facebook as the perfect example of a new power model. Or do you have an old power model? An old power model, you know, think about a tax agency or a government agency who just essentially just hands down diktats of one form or another. So the first dynamic is, do you have an old power or new power model? The second is, do you have old power values or new power values? So are you genuinely looking to encourage the wisdom of the crowd and transparency and distributed power or are you tending towards more controlling values, more closed up values, more um, extractive values? And I think Facebook is a helpful example for us here. So Facebook has this amazing new power model, perhaps the most powerful participatory machine ever built. But its values are actually quite old power. So you think about how Facebook thinks about value extraction, that we're, we're all creating a lot of the value. It's being extracted by others. It's a very closed-up system in in many ways. For all the openness of it, it's obviously very hard to leave Facebook, right? It's actually quite a challenging exercise, and there's really nowhere else to go in terms of competitors viable competitors right now the algorithm is hidden and and it influences our choices and and even our elections and so we have this interesting world right now where you're seeing lots of new power models uh, rise up but they often then get co-opted in powerful ways so i think we see a lot of organizations like that with facebook but i'll give you a more hopeful example too and a more hopeful example would be the parkland kids in america recently with the efforts towards gun control and the March for Our Lives. Now, that was a very new power movement. New power model, it was decentralized, it was distributed, but it also had a real set of new power values. It wasn't about one superstar, it wasn't about them controlling all the power. It really was designed to spread and to make many people more powerful. And, and there's a great phrase that the founders of Black Lives Matter use, which is rather than leaderless movements, you're building leaderful movements. You're building leaders where there isn't one central figure who takes up all the space and all the agency. There are real dangers with that. Um, look, at, look at Lance Armstrong as one example of someone who built this very powerful philanthropic machine around his own personality, and, and it, it suffered as he did. Um, but they create these movements which are leaderful and empower so many more people. So I think one of the interesting things is the people who are coming out on top now are getting new power right from a model perspective. The question of our age is where are they going to push that new power? D- does it end up actually making us all more powerful? Or is the story of our age that all this new power rises up And it's captured by platforms like Facebook or indeed strongmen like Donald Trump.
1: And I have spoken previously to a a chap called John Coventry, who used to be director of communications at change.org and now works for GoFundMe. And he talked in his episode about how information sharing is very much more horizontal these days rather than vertical right Um, and one of the things i do in my day job is think a lot about communications and i am a big devotee of a book by chip and dan heath called made to stick which i know you reference in your own book and they for people who aren't familiar talk about the principles of success as a way of getting messages to stick in people's heads um, and you have added a, an addendum or a prefix to success is that right yeah i think we tried to build on that a bit so i think we we, we tried to say that beyond getting ideas into people's
2: heads the question now is how do you get them into their hands but that's the shift of an age right which is now people want to adapt messages themselves and i think that the the march for our lives is a great example of that it wasn't just a stick that wasn't like just a story you know you remember the story of the guy who had uh, the, i remember the story now from that book of the guy who was you know got his kidney taken out overnight and stolen, right? You have these very vivid stories that stick in your brains. But what sticks in your hand isn't quite the vivid story as much as it is the kind of shared space that turns into something. So you think of something like the ice bucket challenge, real real new, new power phenomenon. That really built these three principles, what we call an ACE idea, right? So A-C-E, an ACE idea. It asks you to do something so it's actionable, right, that you put water over your head. It was connected, it tied you to a peer group, you nominated other people, and it tied you to a higher purpose, which was the ALS Society. And it was extensible, you could actually turn the whole frame into something new. So when Ian McKellen took the, or Patrick Stewart, took the Ice Bucket Challenge, he uh, poured himself a large whiskey dropped a couple of ice cubes in wrote a check and then toasted the camera right and so that's very different than an idea that's meant to stick the idea meant to stick is there's one thing that everyone does and it looks the same always an idea that is made to spread is capable of morphing and i think that's a set of skills that are very hard for people who are used to the idea that they have their perfect idea, they deliver it to the marketplace, and everyone's job is to replicate and admire. That's a very different approach to how ideas spread than putting ideas into the market that are designed to be imperfect. You leave agency for others to fill that space. One of the campaigns we've worked on is is Giving Tuesday. So it was our response to Black Friday and Cyber Monday. And what we've learned from Giving Tuesday is people have time and time again grabbed the Giving Tuesday piece and turned it into something else, So the charity Dress for Success in the U.S. who help women going back into the workplace with clothes and outfits turned Giving Tuesday into Giving Shoes Day and they got donations of shoes. The University of Michigan turned Giving Tuesday into Giving Blue Day and raised over $5.5 million last year. In Singapore, it became Giving Week because they thought they ought to do a whole week and do a lot of work around volunteering. In Russia, there were 2,000 events last year around Giving Tuesday all around kind of civic support. And so... What's interesting and what's educational for us about projects like that and campaigns like that is you realize that you have this generation of people who want to do more. And anyone who wants to come out on top in that world has to be thinking very carefully about how you invite them to participate. And one of the things I think institutions fail to do, not always, but often, they fail to invite people to participate in interesting ways. You know, the great critique of our times is that people don't trust institutions. And one of the driving reasons for that is that institutions don't trust people. what I mean by that is we have these really important institutions like the government or the academy or the media and they don't actually create very meaningful routes for people to participate we're still in a kind of uh, quite peripheral and transactional and, and not very interesting relationship with those agencies and one of the things when you take a step back is you think about any young person growing up today they have these magnificent feedback loops in their lives right so if you're on Instagram all day and you know if you and I were to go on Instagram now and post a picture of us doing this saying hey having a great podcast conversation within seconds our friends will be pressing heart like buttons and saying hey that looks so good well I I, I was relying (laughs) on your friends at least let's let's, as a thought experiment let's assume at least one of us has enough friends you would immediately get this kind of validation of your peer group right none of whom are going to say that looks super boring none of whom is going to say that's a dreadful t-shirt they're all going to say this is just terrific in every way and you're going to get this kind of instant affirmative peer validated feedback loop and a lot of people all day long they experience these feedback loops and then they encounter government right And they wait forever to get a form. They don't understand the bureaucracy. They don't understand where their tax money is going. They don't feel enfranchised. There are all these barriers and these these very poor feedback loops. And so I think one of the gaps to start thinking about how we fill it is how we can get our institutions to trust our people more by creating these more meaningful feedback loops. And I think there are some really interesting examples beginning to emerge around the world of just that.
1: I'm interested to know what some of those examples are because it seems to me there is a, a fairly glacial pace in most government institutions, And the ability and and actually the resources necessary to open up to participatory citizen activism within decision making in government costs a lot. It requires doing things in a very different way, doing things in a different way, takes a lot of time. So where you are seeing examples, are are they happening at pace? Are they happening at speed? Yeah, in some places. I think the cost, the, the higher cost
2: than capital is actually often professional identity. One of the reasons that people don't like to think about this shift is because it's an assault on a kind of old power identity people have grown for years. We we learn about this really interesting study of NASA, which is a kind of an interesting government agency to think about. So it was five years ago or so, and they were... Being accused of not being innovative enough, and the political winds had turned against them, and their budget was being threatened, and all these bad things were happening. So, NASA, one part of NASA at the Kennedy Space Center, decided they would invest in open innovation. So, open innovation is this idea that you invite the crowd into your work to take on your problems. And so, they lay out nine of their biggest strategic challenges, and they say to the crowd, Here's what we're working on. Do you have any ideas? And they're amazed by how quickly they get results back, and they're amazed by how good these results are. And there's one. Result in particular, which becomes like an allegory for the whole thing. There's a guy who, in his shed in New Hampshire, solves a problem in heliophysics. So, one of the problems in heliophysics is solar storms, right? If if you're a space traveler, you want to avoid solar storms, very, very bad, flying at millions of miles an hour, very hot. So, the best algorithm NASA had, about an hour and a half before one of these things would arrive, they could predict it and they would get it right about 50% of the time. Now, this algorithm came in from a, a guy in his shed who had none of the Technical know-how or, or tools of NASA, and it could predict it eight hours in advance with a 75 percent degree of accuracy. Now people were amazed; like this is incredible. This this is this. The crowd is coming in. They're engaged. The White House got excited. This has really set off this wildfire of excitement around open innovation. There was a big meeting at NASA. A colleague of ours, Hilla Lifshitz Asaf at NYU, she studied all of this. She did this very interesting longitudinal study of NASA during this period. So she tells the story of this meeting, and and the chief scientist stands up and says, we're going to break new ground in open innovation. NASA's going to lead the charge for open innovation. And it really ended up, that meeting ended up not going at all well. There was a real conflict in the room. And what ended up happening, and she tells this story, these two groups at NASA Start to emerge as they start to embrace open innovation Even though the open innovation is delivering some really interesting results So it's not like the results aren't good, the results are good These two camps appear and the camp number one Loves this stuff, they're excited about it They're changing their uh, dreams They're They're telling new stories about their work About kind of the YouTube hero who had discovered A new way, they're shifting their professional Identities, they're doing this really interesting set of things It's group one Group 2 does everything they can to keep the crowd out of NASA. So they give them the worst possible information to solve problems. Uh, Some departments even deny they're taking part in in, in the whole thing, and they start to undermine the whole thing. They really resist this crowd. And what's interesting about these two groups is this isn't about age there are similar age people in both groups nor is it about technological know-how which is often how people think about these challenges right you just don't understand digital these are literally rocket scientists so they all understand the technological side of things but they're having a very different reaction and she unpacks it very nicely as saying these two professional identities emerge one is the problem solver mindset, which is what we think of as kind of the old power mindset. And one is the solution seeker mindset, which is the new power mindset. So the problem solver lives in the scientific tradition, right? It's the apple on the head. It's the, you know, the, it's the moment of brilliance in the bathtub. I alone can fix it. I'm going to have my expert moment and I will solve the scientific tradition. It's a job of scientist. And she tells a funny story, which is often when she's talking to these scientists about open innovation, they'll start talking to her about how many degrees that they have and she never ever asks them about their degrees but their immediate default is this is an attack on my professional identity so group one was these problem solvers group two is these solution seekers people who actually just want to go out there and find solutions from the crowd and she tells this great moment of of this tension real tension inside NASA there's one moment that one of the scientists stands up and is falling out with her colleagues about all this work and she says to her colleagues we have to stop thinking the lab is my world and start thinking the world is my lab And I think that's the key shift here, right, if you think about government and institutions. Are you thinking of your work like a problem solver? It's my job. I'm going to fix it. The outside world isn't really meaningfully engaged. Or are you thinking about your world like a solution seeker? You're genuinely seeking out the best solutions from wherever they come, and you're changing your professional identity to be able to do that. And I think that's the right place to start.
0: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers.
2: In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites so start looking in the right place with LinkedIn you can hire professionals like a professional Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people
1: today and do you think there's a risk there you know you, you touched earlier on on kind of um, on the lack of trust in institutions at the moment do you think there's a risk that if government opens up and becomes that kind of more enters a more nodal way of doing things that actually people lose the respect and security and sense of authority that actually they need from government institutions
2: uh, yes i do think that's a risk but i i think it's a, i think it's a second order risk I think the first-order risk is actually something different. The first-order risk is in a world where everyone wants wants to participate more, um, government doesn't really adapt, and doesn't really change. So the most powerful feedback loops are coming from the wrong places. So you think about, right now, think about how the climate deniers are arguably out-messaging the climate scientists. Think about are the anti-vaxxers are out-messaging the health... Professionals, right? Think about the general assault on enlightenment values, right? If government doesn't win these battles, or at least contribute to these battles, they're going to get won by people who we really don't like. The answers they're going to come up with. So I think that's the real the first danger of all this work. And the, and the second danger is if if you accept our thinking, the, the world, the, the future is essentially this battle for mobilization. Who is ever going to mobilize best? There is a real danger that what ends up happening is as, as new power rises up, people, and I, I don't just mean people on the right. I mean even progressives start getting more and more worried by the chaos and the chaos of all these surges and all this current flowing around the world and all these moments and all this participation actually pushes us further and further into government being much more controlling and i think that's actually the nightmare scenario here is you end up in a place where you have a world which is both much more participatory
1: and much more authoritarian and presumably there's a kind of interesting mirror in that where you use Facebook as an example of a kind of sharing platform that actually ultimately is, is, is owning a hell of a lot of influence. Similarly, I guess there's a similar tension, I guess, in government. I would really, I really agree with that. And actually, I think the, place, the thing which we have been thinking
2: about, or they didn't write much about in the book about this, but it's been on my mind a lot recently, is China. Hmm. And so China is highly participatory in terms of social media and in terms of people kind of engaging in things. And But some of the things they're engaging in, there's, you know, if you want to engage in commerce or in culture or in entertainment, you're highly encouraged. But of course you're kept well away from engaging in politics, right, in an interesting way. And so the kind of bargain going on there is we're going to give you all this participatory energy. We're going to let you do all this stuff. You have this power to share, to engage, do all the stuff in the world. But actually the governance of the mm-hmm. enterprise is going to be owned by somebody else. And And I think that's the, the worry. And in that world, you know, the, the platform and the state actually start to merge.
1: Uh, and you touched on the fact that kind of, in some ways, climate deniers are out-messaging out climate change campaigners. You know, going one step further... Trump's out messaging the opposition. I would say in the UK here, Corbyn's out messaging the opposition. I would say both of those men have strong authoritarian tendencies. And so if you're interested, and I've talked a lot before about believing that government should be a force for good in society. And I'm thinking a lot about trying to frame things around positive politics. Yep. Um, If you're interested in positive politics and you think, right, okay, hang on a minute the other the other guys and girls have got a jump on us at the moment. They're communicating. They're using these ace ideas and yep. the old made-to-stick success principles and they're ahead. Yep. It's not that the world's gone crazy. It's just that we're being out-communicated. Right. There are two ways to respond to that. You either think, oh, well, they've stopped playing by the rules. They're playing fast and loose with the truth. We should start doing that. And yet, government and institutional and sensible thinking says, we can't do that because you can't play fast and loose with the yep. truth. Right. Or you think, okay, well, what's the regulatory framework within which we're enabling these conversations to happen? And then you start to look in the direction of social media companies and internet regulation and so on. If you were offered a path between regulatory frameworks and let's call it more creative communications, which one do you think would be more profitable?
2: (laughs) Well, I think what's interesting, actually, the the Corbyn-Trump example is an interesting one because the, the thing that they both have is what we think of as an intensity machine. And we've been thinking a lot about this as a kind of structure of government now, right? Or a, certainly a political leadership, whereby there was a lot of talk at the time when Trump was elected of Big Brother. You know, George Orwell, the 1984, had a surge, and everyone kind of, there was this Big Brother moment. And actually, Trump is actually a very different kind of a political leader than Big Brother. Like, Big Brother was always about control, and everything was the same, and everyone thought the same way. And there was a ministry of, of one single truth, right? It was a very kind of a command and control approach to that. What Trump's done it is actually release energy, right? He's been very enthusiastic about letting his crowd go wild, right? And encouraging that, he's been retweeting people who have very extreme views. He's been, uh, you know, offering to pay the legal fees of, of, of people who punch other people, right? He's actually really embraced the agency of his crowd. And in doing so, he has this, what we think of as his intensity machine, which lives next to his candidacy and his presidency. He doesn't ever quite own it. It's not his. He can certainly deny it. and it does, But it creates huge amounts of energy around his work in, in very effective ways and that's beginning to be true of momentum and Corbyn in the same way I was talking to someone recently inside the Labour Party who was saying you know what's interesting is that all of these ideas and memes and videos that would never have got through you know the party as an old power function that would never have got through legal marketing would have never signed them off right they're being created by members of the, of the intensity machine and doing huge amounts of work for the party, but separated from the party. And so as you think about, okay, if that's the diagnosis that you see a Trump figure has this intensity thing, a Corbyn figure has this intensity machine, the question then becomes, how do those on the side of the angels build intensity machines? So what is the intensity machine around Uh, evidence-based reporting what is the evidence what is the intensity machine around facts what is the intensity machine the list goes on right we're going to have to mobilize against these things if we're going to beat them and in that scenario i I worry that kind of the the go-to heavy club of regulation although i think it's part of the solution i think the danger is kind of us giving up our agency and saying governments Come along, fix it. Whereas actually part of the solution is about us all embracing our opportunities, which we all have now, to spread ideas, to contribute to a greater debate. I I think certainly that there are a lot of people in the Brexit debate who felt like they ended up the wrong side of it, not because they had the wrong arguments. They had the right arguments. The the arguments just weren't spreading, right? They were righteous and they were evidence-based, but they weren't effective. And it used to be that truth was enough. You know, truth was on my side. Um, Now truth is actually something of a discouragement.
1: I, uh, I'm conscious we could talk about, I think we could talk at great length about the implications of new power for journalism, because many newspapers and media houses are institutions in and of themselves. I don't think we've got time to do that, unfortunately, or for brands even. But one brand that I think is worth touching on, because you talk about it in a book, is Kickstarter. Right. And you you reference how Kickstarter has now registered as, a, I think, it's a public benefit corporation. Yeah. Um, And I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit because I wonder if it's a model that people might want to encourage other social media organizations to think about. Yeah, so we think Kickstarter is really interesting.
2: They really had this idea from the beginning, even when investors were coming along, that they weren't going to get their kind of unicorn mindset on, where their job was to just get as as hugely wealthy as they could early on. They really had a kind of community dynamic built into it, and they were really trying to build it for the long term. So we frame Kickstarter as an organization who have a really kind of they're trying to develop a very meaningful relationship with all of their constituents. They're thinking very carefully about being a long-term public good, not in a flash of the pan. They're not thinking, let's just do this for three years, run up the score and sell it as quickly as we can. They're thinking about doing something which is profitable, that these people are capitalists, but in the context of a longer-term benefit to society. So we frame this as, as camels, not unicorns. So the fetishization of unicorns is let's everyone scale, scale, scale at any cost. Let's get it as big as we can, as quick as we can. And then let's sell it and make sure or, or, or let's make it public and people will cash out. The camel is a different beast than the unicorns. The camel is something that if tended over the long term will actually serve society more widely. And so I think we need to get to a point where we are a little bit less focused on the kind of flash in the pan successes of, of Silicon Valley and more focused on some businesses that will be there for the long term.
1: And you're you're fairly familiar with the world of philanthropy, um, which is something that Britain as a whole is largely unfamiliar with. Yeah. Um. And I wonder whether I wonder what thinking there is in the philanthropic world about how to address some of these problems Um, because there is a crossover between new philanthropy and Silicon Valley and there is a crossover between Silicon Valley and the drivers of new power. Right. Um, So is there anything that's kind of coming together in the middle of that 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 is interesting and has caught your attention?
2: One of the challenges for charities is is for them to start thinking differently about how they invite people to participate and so i think the charity sector does terrific work writ large with our you know missteps once in a while but we do need to readdress the power dynamic that we have with our supporters and so often we think of people really as cash registers right our job is just to find ways to get money out of people and and that pays bills and those bills save lives right or improve lives so that's very important work don't get me wrong but in a world where you see so many people who expect to do simply more than just pay bills they want to get engaged you have to create more meaningful routes to participation so so one of the things that, that we encourage is for charities is to stop thinking about donors and start thinking about owners. And what I mean by that is you're not just a donor to an institution, but you're an owner of the cause. You can do something with it. You can make it more meaningful. Because some of the most interesting data coming out of philanthropy is, it let's, let's assume for the sake of argument, I make a £100 donation to the cause you care about most. Terrific, that's £100 of value. If I make a £100 donation and I share about it, The value increases if i make a hundred pound donation and i share about it and i ask my friends to donate too it gets even higher and if i do all of those things and make a video about it it gets even higher than that so there's an interesting kind of new power multiplier tied to donations that if you are asking people to do more than simply pay your bills you're actually going to get a lot further as an institution so i think one place for philanthropy to start is the old power world we thought about people as donors. In the new power world, we need to start thinking about them as owners.
1: I was talking to somebody who used to work for Uber recently who's written quite a lot on the challenges technology poses to government. And he had perhaps flippantly said that he felt that by far the most compelling visions of the future on the planet today are to be found in Silicon Valley. Is that something you'd agree with? Well, compelling is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure "compelling" is quite the right word. I think they certainly have a vision of the future.
2: I mean, I think there's, so there's I mean, there's a very clear kind of mindset in, in Silicon Valley, which, which is actually, and I was there recently, is still holding up quite well. That there is this kind of view, even in the face of the challenges, which are so obvious, I think, to most people right now, that somehow, with sufficient innovation and sufficient boldness, the world will get better right that there's to come kind of at some point if we keep on moving fast and breaking shit then eventually um utopia will be found and I, and I do I do worry very deeply about that because I think it it hasn't proved to to be true and I think some of the most compelling visions actually that that, that I've heard in this space don't come from Silicon Valley at all but come from some other places so there's a guy at the uh, University of Boulder in Colorado called Nathan Schneider who has led a movement which has representatives everywhere around the idea of the platform co-op the platform co-op takes the idea of the co-op which we know and love and especially in in the UK and then reinvents it for the platform age so essentially the way to think about that is imagine the uber that was co-owned by its drivers imagine the twitter that was co-owned by all of us as users what they're starting to think about is a vision where you have these enormous platforms clearly platforms are going to exist and grow but in that world there are ways of creating those kinds of platforms that end up benefiting society more widely and i think that's a very exciting direction not not in silicon valley i think the other place we saw something exciting happen and it's a metaphor rather than a perfect study but i think it's interesting. is is to do with Uber in in Austin, Texas. So Uber and uh, Lyft are falling out with the local government there. They're falling out because the government wants them to do fingerprinting and they don't want to do fingerprinting. And everyone assumes they'll work it out at the 11th hour, and they don't. And so one Friday night, Uber and Lyft pull out of Austin. So Austin very big Uber market, very big ride sharing market, uh, uh, Uber and Lyft they literally switch off the apps, so when you go to the app there 's just no cars left on there, and so they, they have this huge desire and this huge market, and no one to fill it. The mayor gets together with a group of of, of entrepreneurs and coders, and they hack together something called Ride austin and Ride Austin it looks exactly like Uber. if you look at it functionally, it looks because like, they basically i think just stole the code or at least the code <laughs> so it looks exactly like Uber. In terms of the user experience, which is really important because the user experience is what drives these behaviours, but it behaves very differently from a structural perspective. So it's it's set up as a non-profit. They talk about it as made for Austin by Austin, which I think is really interesting. All the money goes to the drivers, 100%. You can tip up on each ride to support local charities. They put all of their data in the open so it can be used for public transport benefit. They start to experiment with rides whereby the premium riders can actually offset the cost of people taking journeys in the poorer parts of town and they developed this really powerful community around Ride Austin where people are having picnics together and barbecues together and creating this kind of community dynamic and they make money they're successful they go over a million rides they go profitable in the end and so it becomes this really interesting example of okay, well couldn't you imagine there being a Ride Austin and a Ride San Francisco and a Ride London and a Ride Manchester and a Ride San Paolo you can see this going around the world there's a lot of incentives for cities particularly to have their own versions of this and you might even imagine a federated platform where all of these different local areas could fit together now obviously there are network effects at play here but actually 90% of ride sharing is local right? it doesn't necessarily follow that it needs to be around the world i think that's a really interesting example of what might be coming next and, and i don't think that's certainly in my in my studies that hasn't come from silicon valley
1: i guess if it was a rip-off of uber in, the, in a very successful and, and very compelling rip-off of, of uber but perhaps it did kind of come from silicon valley <laughs> well i think the model came from silicon valley but the, the vision, the, the values came from yeah. somewhere else.
2: So and I, I think. I think that's probably the right analysis.
1: And is it fair to say that that things like that would be in your vision for a successful new power world? One hundred percent. I think we have to think
2: in structural terms. Like the movement right now is delete Facebook. The question, though, is replace Facebook. Right? What is, what, what is the version of that that is actually better for all of us? How does who is going to build it, and how is that going to get built? I think that's absolutely key.
1: Uh, Henry, I really enjoyed the book. I thought it was fresh, salient, and practical, and would strongly re- recommend it to all government versus the robot listeners. Um, I've got one last question for you, which is, uh, were I to grant you omnipotence uh, to do just one thing to make a a kind of successful, cooperative, new power world more of a likelihood in the future, what is the one thing that you might change about the current situation we find ourselves in that you think would put us on a a faster and more, more, uh, more prosperous and successful
2: road to the future? So there's an idea a friend of mine Stanford has, um, and a lot of people actually are working on this now, but he's been thinking about this for a while. Rob Reich, who's a professor there and has been a a good collaborator, I've raised my many years. What he's trying to do now is make sure that every engineer in the world begins their career as they learn to be an engineer by considering ethics. So what he's trying to do is actually add into the curriculum around learning how to code, learning how to build these things, that you actually have to have an ethical component in that. And I think there's an educational element to that. I think if you could actually get a new generation of people thinking, look, they don't want to be in a world where you build these, these things which can become monsters, right? They want to build things that actually are considering some of the ethical dynamics. If you could educate a generation of coders uh, in a very meaningful way, not in a kind of glib, let's talk about Plato
1: once a year kind of a way, but in a way that really forced them to consider some of these issues, I think that would be a pretty big contribution. Uh, you mentioned 1984 earlier on. Pub trivia fans will be, uh, they'll give a wry smile to know that it is a hot, sunny day in April outside today. <laughs> uh, I very much appreciate you taking the time to join me in this dark, not-so-sunny basement and uh, talking through what was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's it for this week. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. We'll be back next time with more. But in the meantime, if you've enjoyed that, please do share it, tell your friends about it, or follow us on Twitter at govt__vs__robots.com. Underscore underscore and subscribe on iTunes. My thanks to Sky Redmond for her help with the production and editing of this podcast. We'll be back next time.
0: Planning for your next trip?